Special thanks to Noah, News Over Audio, for sponsoring this episode. Noah is an audio app that allows you to listen to articles from premium publishers like The Economist, Bloomberg, and many more. Check out the link in the episode description for one month free of Noah Premium. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Few topics divide opinion more than investing in China. The incredible growth, the ethical dilemmas, the disappointing returns. This week, we look at big economic and political developments in China and whether now is the time to buy Chinese equity. I want to know what opportunities and risks to consider and how to think about Chinese stocks in the context of our portfolios. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, what happens if Chinese stocks are delisted from the New York Stock Exchange? Okay, let's get into it. So when we're thinking about investing in China, I think it's fair to say it's one of the most divisive things in investment. So either people think it's the future, it's the second biggest economy, it's going to keep growing, we want to over-allocate there. Or they're super pessimistic and think, we can't trust the numbers, we can't trust the Chinese government, you'd be a fool to put any money in China at all. So Robin, why is it so divisive and where do you stand on that mix? Well, I mean, personally, you can tell I kind of buy into the story about growth long term. And I do have an investment in China. So I do have that K-Web atrocious investment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So you should be pessimistic because you've lost a load of money there. Well, you know, I think I bought at a bad time. But I think long term, would I be willing to buy more of it? I think I probably would. Because for me, I think from a point of view of politics, they do some objectionable things. But you could say the same about other countries in which I invest in developed markets. And will my holding back and not investing in KWeb affect their policy? No, I don't think it will. Well, they're not there at the Chinese Communist Party meetings going, well, we don't want Roman to pull his money out, so let's moderate our policies. <laughs> <laughs> but generally, I think the availability of capital would potentially affect policy in China. If Western markets were shut to them completely, it would be fairly catastrophic from their point of view. Maybe not the equity market, but certainly in terms of trade. But it would also be catastrophic for the West. So I think there's this kind of mutually assured destruction if we do cut off ties. So while Russia has been a huge lesson in the risks of EM, you know, it had a very high dividend for many of its stocks. So if you were a high dividend investor in EM, effectively you were buying Russian stocks. And of course, those got massively hit with the invasion of Ukraine. But there's a whole world apart between Russia and China in terms of size, in terms of importance, systemic importance, but also in terms of growth. I think it'll get to the point where if you are an investor in 20 years time and you buy a global index, China's going to be a very significant part of that unless something goes very, very badly wrong. So maybe let's summarise in the high level terms what the optimistic view is and what the pessimistic view is. So as I understand it, the optimistic view on China is that, okay, things are bad at the moment because we've had some policy missteps, you know, we've had zero COVID and things like that, but we've got the Chinese Communist Party Congress in the autumn and maybe after that things will start to go back to normal, rationality will resume, economic growth will resume and, you know, you don't want to miss out on that as an investor. So on the optimistic side, I'd agree with a lot of those statements. And I think if you look at buying tech companies right now, globally, let's imagine that you couldn't see which country the company was domiciled in. Look at the valuations and look at the prospective growth expectations. The ones which would really stand out are the ones in China, because the valuations are super low. The growth expectations are very high, and I think justified. 
And you compare that with the US, where growth is kind of topping out. If you look at companies like Facebook, you know, they've achieved so much penetration in global markets, and it's hard to grow further. Whereas in China, there's still a lot of upside in terms of growth, and the valuations are just crazily low, perhaps for good reason. And we should say at this point that K-Web fund you referenced is Chinese internet companies. So (laughs) you haven't learned your lesson, Roman, have you? (laughs) But the logic is still there. And I think if you do expect that policy won't clamp down on these companies, at least not to the extent that it would crush future profit growth, then, you know, it does look like a very compelling buy to me. Yeah, maybe that leads us into the pessimistic view. Because the pessimistic view here is that President Xi is serious and has changed direction in Chinese policy over the past few years, and that the future of China is going to be far more ideological than it is practical. Because I think it's fair to say, since the 70s and the decades where it's expanded massively, it's taken a really pragmatic view to trade with the West and to shifting its economy to be more urban and to investing in its manufacturing capability and now in its technological progress. But that could all be crushed, couldn't it? if the political decisions move in the wrong way. My favourite graph, which kind of sums up the policy shift and its effect on markets at least, is the one which shows the Wisdom Tree China XSOE fund. So let's just say what an SOE is. It's a state-owned enterprise, such as China Mobile, where the government effectively controls the company. Now, the argument until February of 2021 was that for these state-owned enterprises there was a massive misallocation of capital. So these were companies which were inefficiently run for the good of the customers rather than the shareholders, which is like a heresy for Westerners. Yeah, it sickens me as a (laughs) capitalist. Imagine caring about that. But certainly from the point of view of the shareholders, what it meant was that the returns weren't particularly good. Yeah, there was a decade where there was a massive gulf between the performance of the state-owned enterprises, which underperformed in China, and the sort of true independent companies, in inverted commas, as much as you can be in China, which posted good returns. And almost the exact turning point when we had this huge rally in growth stocks, including this XSOE index from Wisdom Tree. Was when you invested? No, <laughs> it's not far <laughs> off, actually. <laughs> <laughs> But the exact turning point is when we have these growth stocks start to sell off, but also some of these policy clampdowns. And since then, it's almost been a steady decline in that XSOE index. Whereas if you look at a broader index like MSCI China, that's actually been flat almost over that same period. So there's a massive outperformance of an index which includes SOEs. So I think that the policy shift is not something that's going to go away. While President Xi's around, it'll continue to be the case that companies which start to threaten the state in any way whatsoever will be punished and they're going to get their feathers clipped. And whether that means getting rid of the CEO, whether it means splitting the company up because it's getting too large and too systemically important, I think that will potentially be a problem for Chinese stocks. However, I don't think it means that there can't be any innovation in Chinese companies, that internet companies can't thrive. They just have to be careful. So I think in terms of summarising the pessimistic view, there was a quote I liked from the hedge fund manager Carl Bass in an interview with the FT. And he stopped investing in China around 12 years ago. He says, I decided it was a market that I would never invest in. A question for investors is why would you invest in China given all the risks? There's no rule of law. There is no fiduciary duty towards investors and no appropriate level of auditing for their companies. 
And another investor, Carson Block, says China is rule by law, but not rule of law. And, you know, <laughs> investors are reliant, really, on being able to trust the numbers and trust that the government isn't going to squash companies they've invested in. So, in fact, Carson Block is such a colourful character. I love his comments, but he's obviously hugely bearish on China. And some of his best shorts have been in China, where he makes money from a company's stock price falling. A lot of my shorts come from China. Oh, very good. <laughs> but his point and the whole name of his company is based on the lack of transparency of companies in China and the difficulty of understanding exactly what their numbers really are in terms of sales and in terms of the balance sheets. And then this is the thing that's underpinning the potential for Chinese companies to be delisted from US stock markets, which we'll come on to in the dumb question of the week later on. But maybe now let's think about the macro situation in China, because I think it's fair to say their growth situation has stalled and there's big problems building up in the economy. So some people estimate that about a fifth of the economy was involved in house building and there's been an implosion of that market. We're getting to the point where people have paid for flats or houses which were going to be developed but then they've lost faith in the ability of the companies to actually deliver those properties and they've pulled their money out or they're demanding their money back. So while the gravy train was going, a lot of local governments made a lot of money by selling land for developers. And then lots of banks were providing the financing for this. And then it was all kind of recycled through wealth management products. So we had the same piece of collateral being used multiple times. All of that gravy train is kind of imploding. And that's going to have a negative effect on Chinese growth, a very significant one, because it was a misallocation of capital. Yeah, because it's such an important part of the economy and it's hugely leveraged. Yeah, it's the classic problem. Effectively, what they've done is they've recreated 2008 in China. It's a bootleg version. <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> You're on a roll today, Michael. <laughs> But the difference is that they've actually improved on the model because I think their government is in a better position to limit the damage, not just because they can lie about the numbers, but because they have central control. Whereas the US government had real trouble forcing its own politicians to take the problem seriously. And I still remember Hank Paulson begging on his knees for Congress to agree to a bailout. Yeah, so there's no danger that China isn't going to bail out its companies if it's on the verge of collapse. But the question is, without real reform, are they just kicking the can further and further down the road? Is there going to have to be a shakeout eventually? I think the shakeout is already happening. I think there will be a reallocation of capital. And what China's trying to do, I think, is to move the capital into more productive things, focusing on things, for example, like new technology, for example, AI. They're just pouring money into that right now. And things like 5G networks, rail networks, infrastructure, and of course, education. So I think they're doing the right things. They're putting money into things which are productive. And they have listened to their economists, which you could argue that people in the West might benefit from that. Yeah, because that's the biggest misunderstanding, I think, about China from people in the West, is that they're no longer really an economy that's reliant on manufacturing. They've moved already into a service-based economy, and it's heading in the direction of an extremely technologically advanced service economy. It's already there. You know, I mean, if you just go to Beijing or, you know, I went to Shanghai a couple of years ago, it's a weird juxtaposition of old and new. You know, you're on a main road and there's some guy with this massive cart being pulled by a bicycle. And yet, in many ways, it's kind of massively technologically advanced with things like 5G. So they're well ahead of the West in some ways. So I think they have reformed and they are changing. 
and they are trying to shift the focus of their economy away from property, they're certainly doing all the right things. And I think they're likely to succeed in that because, you know, they have a central government, which is so powerful. And if anyone tries to oppose it, they'll simply have their opinion squashed. So in some ways, democracy isn't good at dealing with these crises. Well, democracies have lasted a long time in the US and Europe and been very good for shareholders over a long period of time. But if you look at, for example, the origins of democracy, if you look at ancient Greece, it was a catastrophe. And the cities which were democratically run eventually kind of imploded. So it was an experiment that kind of went wrong. But I agree, you know, I'm not going to say democracy is bad. I'm just saying that for crises, it's not a particularly good way, as long as the central government does the right things. Well, that's the point, isn't it? At least in a democracy, you can kind of get rid of a bad idea or a bad government in theory. If the Chinese Communist Party goes mental, what are you going to do? The thing is, though, people will not vote for the things which necessarily are going to get you out of the crisis. So, for example, if you had two choices as a UK politician, one of which is to simply prop up house prices by making it cheaper for young people to buy those properties, or B, increase supply meaningfully, which would you do? If I'm a Tory, I'm propping up house prices. <laughs> <laughs> but you could say that Labour would do the same thing. We've gone on a massive tangent. But I think the point about dealing with the crisis, I think that's an important one. Yeah, I guess the question is, would they resolve a crisis in a way that's beneficial to shareholders? I think the answer is no. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the point, isn't it? As an investor. And to be fair, if you've invested in an over-leveraged property company, which is reliant on an asset bubble, you should lose your money as an investor. Yeah, I mean, that's the way we look at it in the West. It is a kind of Darwinian approach to misallocation of capital. And I think what they're probably going to do is make companies stay on the hook for the losses and favour the people who've actually bought the houses. That's pretty clear in terms of their policy and in terms of the outcomes so far. And you could argue that's a good thing, but not for the shareholders. That's where we've seen huge falls in the bond market, for example, the offshore Evergrande bonds, for example, whereas they favoured the onshore securities. And this is one of the reasons why I think if you are going to invest in China, try to invest in the same assets which the government will kind of protect, which local people would also be buying. I mean, it's interesting if you look at it, there is a question at the moment of are foreign investors abandoning China in some sense? Because Chinese equity markets have obviously sold off hugely, and this has reduced the value of foreign claims on Chinese assets. But even allowing for those effects, foreign investors have been offloading Chinese debt and equities at record rates. And this is a piece of research that Robin Brooks has done. Oh, there's no question. And that's a buying opportunity, at least for some people. So if you are willing to get exposure to China, I think this is an opportunity. And yet we're seeing some big investors like Charlie Munger, but also Ray Dalio sell some of their Chinese investments recently. And they've been the most bullish on China of the major investors I've seen. Which is itself pretty worrying if you are somebody who has got Chinese exposure. But if you are a contrarian, you know, maybe that's a sign that it could be an opportunity. There's a lot of interesting things happening in the Chinese economy at the moment. So the one that's really eye-catching for me is they're running an absolutely enormous trade surplus right now. So in July, their trade surplus was 101 billion dollars just in that month, which was the largest trade surplus for a 30-day period ever recorded by any country in history. 5% of China's GDP. Now, usually we think of, you know, a trade surplus, oh, that's a country doing really well, isn't it? It's like selling so much stuff to the world. It's brilliant. Their economy's firing on all cylinders. 
But there's a lot of talk that maybe this isn't a strong sign for the Chinese economy. Maybe this is actually a sign that it's quite weak right now. I mean, there's a great piece in the FT on this, and I'll quote them. They said, rising exports are usually a good thing, but for countries like China, rising trade surpluses are not. In this case, they are symptoms of deep and persistent imbalances in the domestic distribution of income. These large surpluses are just the obverse of attempts by Beijing to control debt, and so they will persist. And the other problem, I think, which is certainly the case at the moment, is that there's a lack of activity in China. As we said, it's a service-based economy, so it depends on Chinese consumers going out and buying stuff, and they're not doing that. So that itself is worrying. Yeah, it's definitely a weakness in the Chinese consumer right now. And Matt Klein, who writes the Overshoot newsletter, which I really like, he says that China and the US's mirror image responses to the COVID crisis have resulted in mirror image current account movements. So the US stimulated consumption, whereas China relied on infrastructure spending. And now America's surging deficit matches China's mounting surplus. So it's just a huge seesaw going in one direction. And in terms of stimulus, they've just disappointed. So many people were thinking that they were going to increase spending on things like infrastructure, given the weakness due to their zero COVID policy. But that really hasn't happened. I mean, their economic numbers are just disappointing across the board right now. Yeah. So if you look at Chinese retail sales, that was only up 2.7% in July. And that was compared to a forecast of 5%. So that is pretty dire, isn't it? Yeah, it was meant to be recovering super quickly following the COVID contraction. But it's actually not when you look at the numbers. And I think it's because it's the only country in the world, really, which is treating it like they're still in the midst of a terrible pandemic, like they're locking down cities and parts of cities willy-nilly, really. And one of the problems, I think, is that if you look at the older population, they haven't been vaccinated. So really, this is just a way of coping with that problem about their vaccination programme. I mean, the question is, how long are they going to stick with it? So from what I've seen, the suggestion is that they'll stick with it at least until the National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, which is happening sometime later in 2022, possibly in November, when Xi is presumably going to be re-elected. And then maybe they can, you know, experiment a bit more with policy. But until then, they don't want to make any massive changes. And it'll look pretty bad if he backpedals now and say, look, you know how it was a zero COVID policy? <laughs> well, <laughs> so he, he will lose face if he has to turn around. But look, I mean, I think you have to separate out the two problems here. One of them is the immediate problem, which is the fallout from COVID, but also implosion of the housing market, and then look to the kind of longer term growth potential. So it's always the case that when the greatest buying opportunities come around, that there's a terrible story that goes with it. Things are cheap for a reason. You have to be able to look through that initial problem in order to see those opportunities. So I'd actually argue that this is a terrible time, I agree, for China, economically, but also politically, because of you know, all the problems they're having with zero COVID. But that in itself has created the opportunities. So if you do believe in the long-term story, this could be an interesting entry point. But of course, it comes with massive risks. Yeah, I mean, it's not just zero COVID, is it? We're seeing the geopolitical situation, especially around Taiwan, be... Uh interesting. So one of the people I interviewed was Perth Toll, and that interview is available for Pensioncraft members. I didn't publish it on YouTube, but she was completely committed to the idea that freedom is the most important thing. So she creates these things called freedom ETFs, which track a freedom index, which tries to weight based on measures of political freedom. So for example, Taiwan comes out very high on that measure, whereas of course China doesn't. 
And she's been vindicated, I think, by the returns that we've seen recently as China's equity market tanked and Taiwan's has done pretty well. So this is an alternative way of, I think, creating something like an ESG fund, which is to wait based on your criteria, which could be freedom, it could be anything. But certainly China comes out very poorly on many measures. So it's never going to do well for that ETF. It's never going to be included. No, it certainly wouldn't be included while its current political system remains in place. I mean, China is so different to what we used to in the West. You really have to do quite a lot of reading around to really grasp what it's like. One of the resources we use to research this topic is Noah, News Over Audio, who are kindly sponsoring this episode. Noah is an audio app that gives you quality in-depth analysis and opinion from multiple perspectives. Their dedicated team of expert editors handpick the best articles to bring you the story behind the news. Yeah, so Noah curates articles from premium publishers like The Economist, Bloomberg and The Washington Post into dedicated series that guide listeners through the story. In fact, to research this podcast, we listened to the series How China Made Communism 2.0 Work, which looks at China's unique economic and political system from many different perspectives. Noah is available on mobile, desktop, smart speakers and in your car, so you can listen wherever you are. Thanks again to Noah, which is available for £7.99 a month. And if you look in the episode description, you'll find an exclusive link to access one month free of Noah Premium. So yeah, I think it is fair to say that China has made communism 2.0 work, at least up to now. But as it's got more powerful, its economy's grown, is there the potential that it uses that power to kind of decouple from the West? It takes Taiwan, it backs Russia with the war with Ukraine, it doesn't back down from trade wars, and it just sort of pulls the world into two different directions. I think the thing you have to understand about China is their policy operates over hundreds of years. So they seem to think much more long term than people do in the West. Certainly, if you look at a global map of trade in 2000 and 2020, if you colour it according to who trades most with the US and who trades most with China, the map was mostly blue in 2000. If you look at it in 2020, it's almost all red. So Australia, Russia, India, all of Africa, and almost all of South America trades more with China than the US. That's so interesting, isn't it, that it's changed over those two decades? And justifiably, I think, you know, if you make stuff that people want, people want to trade with you. They've certainly nailed that. And if you look at where most of the technological innovations are going to come from in the next 50 years, I think China will be a large source of those. You know, it's got many very intelligent graduates and you can't hold that back from developing new technologies and also innovating. So I think commercial interests will ensure that China doesn't go off the rails because it is such an important power globally now in terms of trade, but also developing new technologies. And I think they can see that in order for that to continue and for stability to continue, they have to maintain those trade links. It really would be mutually assured destruction if they were to cut their trade links or if there was an embargo placed on Chinese goods. But at some point, are they not going to become a real competitor geopolitically to the US and not be happy to just live in the US's conception of global trade and the economy? And they're really going to want to forge their own rules. Well, in effect, I think they already are doing that. And I think the US doesn't like it. <laughs> of course they don't. The US isn't going to like a rising power that challenges their hegemony as we move to the so-called multipolar world that Putin keeps talking about. The thing is, when it was kind of low-cost, low-wage manufacturing, I don't think the US saw that as a threat. But now that they're talking about 
technological innovation, that's really the US's party trick. If you look at what the US equity market's been doing over the last decade, it's five companies, right? It's tech companies which have taken the internet, taken it to the next level, successfully capitalized those companies and grown hugely and also monetized the growth. Whereas if you look at something like, you know, look at TikTok, it's effectively doing what YouTube's done, but it's doing it better. And it's appealing to a young generation. And that's just one example of how they've taken something, innovated it and improved on it. Where's your TikTok profile, Robin? (laughs) I'm not even on TikTok. Yeah, I know. You're just giving it the big sell. You're not on there. It's the next YouTube. (laughs) I'm so old economy, aren't I? So looking at it from the point of view of a cold-blooded, dispassionate investor, from everything you've just said, you'd be crazy not to be in China, right? To have some of your apples in the US basket, some in the Chinese basket, and then hopefully whichever does well, you'll be fine. But the confounding thing there is, if you're based in the West, you don't know that your investments are always going to be protected. And it is an EM country, and things could go badly wrong. What could happen? Well, there could be political instability. What if President Xi is ousted by his own military? I mean, it seems unthinkable, but this whole concept of president for life is new and some people might not be happy with it. And potentially there could be huge ramifications if there is some kind of coup and it would be catastrophic for Chinese equity markets. It would almost certainly take a big chunk out of Western equity markets as well if there was instability in China because you just can't separate the world. There is no decoupling. China is intimately related to every country on the planet through its trade links. It is systemically important. So if it were to undergo this kind of instability, it would be bad for everyone. I mean, we've talked about misconceptions about China, and that's another one, I think, is that people see the Chinese Communist Party as this kind of perfectly aligned, massively powerful body that speaks with one voice. But it really isn't, right? Inside that party is a huge constellation of competing interests at a local level, at a national level. Now, Xi is extremely powerful in there, probably more than anyone else in China since Mao. But yeah, it's not inconceivable that you get internal political wars going on right within China. You know, if he does go off the rails, if Xi goes off the rails, the zero COVID policy seems to come largely from him. You know, that just might be one example of things which could trigger instability and an urge to oust him. And the other thing is if the growth story really does stall, right? If they can't save the property developers from a massive crisis, if people are losing their homes, if people are not continuing to get wealthier, then that's generally thought of as that's when instability can come. Another source might be the huge army of migrant workers in China who don't really officially live in a city. They commute to a city, they work there for months on end and then perhaps send money back home. But if those people effectively haven't got jobs, then immediately they would be a source of instability. As long as you've got a full belly, you kind of don't worry so much about the political system. But as soon as there was a lack of growth and if there was a large spike in unemployment, then that migrant worker force could suddenly turn into an army. You know, I'd be worried about that if I was making policy in China. And all of these policies have a massive effect on the Chinese stock market. So as you've said previously, they did target their own internet companies. If you look at what they did to Jack Ma when they've kind of forced him out of Ant Group and Alibaba, they stopped Ant Group listing on the stock exchange. And all of this built to the fact that they managed to knock over $2 trillion off their own stock market. That's their shares listed in Hong Kong and New York. So 
that's got to make you nervous, right, as an investor in China. Yeah, their utility function is not the utility function in the West. By utility function, I mean what you're trying to maximise with the company. For them, it's also important to think about the greater social good. Now, if your utility function drifts, as Jack Mars did, you can bet that they're going to put it back into line with the communist parties. If a company does become too big, if it becomes too successful, if it starts collecting data on citizens, which the state sees as its role, then it's going to run foul of the authorities. No question. So companies will have to operate under that umbrella and adjust their policies accordingly. But, you know, they're smart. They'll realise what the constraints are. And I think there's still capacity for growth with those constraints. So looking at it as an investor, we often talk about index funds, right, as the best way to access market returns. Does that hold true in China with all these risks and the sort of unpredictability of which companies are going to be targeted next? So it really depends on which index you go for. I think in terms of minimising your political risk, I'd go for something which Chinese people would buy, which would be A-shares. So these are shares which are traded on local exchanges. So it could be the Shanghai exchange, it could be the Shenzhen stock exchange, but they're priced in local currency as well, in renminbi. Yeah, and it's quite recent, actually, that Chinese A-shares actually got included in the MSCI EM index with China's Qualified Foreign Institutional Investor Scheme, which basically was the first time non-Chinese people were allowed to even think about buying these A-shares, right? And initially, it was just a handful of brokers that were QFIIs. But then it's grown quite quickly now so that there's a lot more liquidity and a loosening of the financial spigot in terms of how much capital can flow into those domestic stocks from foreign investors. And then you've got a whole kind of family of other types of Chinese shares which you could buy, such as H shares. So these are Chinese companies, but they're traded on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, which is much more international in its outlook, if you like. And these are companies which are incorporated in China, but traded on that Hong Kong exchange. Then you've got B shares. So these are traded on local exchanges in China, but priced in foreign currencies. So what I'd say is probably best is go for the A shares because that's what Chinese investors are going to get. And one of the arguments made for A shares is that they have a very low correlation, relatively speaking, to other emerging markets. So it's a real boon for diversification. I think if there's a crash in global equity, it's going to affect that market. So maybe the correlation is lower and it does provide some diversification. But if there's a big crash, these companies are going to be affected. I mean, China is kind of unusual, isn't it, as an EM country? It's not EM in the way that most of the other developing countries are. Yeah, I mean, you can't compare Peru and China, right? It's kind of like (laughs) very different things. China is kind of sui generis. You can't really treat it like a developed market country or like another EM country. In fact, the whole category of EM, I think, is not a particularly helpful one. Yeah, I think that's true. And it's interesting that when we think about allocating to China... It almost makes sense to have it as an allocation in its own right. So you've got developed markets, emerging markets, and then a Chinese allocation. And some asset managers actually advocate for that approach. So it's a whole other category on its own. Which is interesting because you have things like developed markets XUS or developed markets XUK. It's unusual to find EMX China. You can get it. You can now, yeah. And interesting that they carved out China as a separate thing. Yeah, you're not going to carve out (laughs) Peru, are you? But China, you are possibly going to do that. (laughs) I want EMX Peru. But I think it's because a lot of the things that drive Chinese equity 
are so specific to it. It's how is the Communist Party behaving? What's it doing? And its role, China's role in the global economy is quite different from other emerging markets. And size, you know, that's the obvious thing. I think it's kind of like London in the UK. There's just basically London and the rest of the country. And similarly in EM, there's China and the rest of EM. Yeah, I don't want UK X London. I want London X UK. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, everywhere else. So in terms of weighting China in your portfolio, if you're going down this approach where you're deciding your own weightings between DM, EM and China, what would be a sensible allocation? Because a lot of people say that China is actually kind of underweighted, really, in the global indices when you compare it to its GDP, its growth, its population. It's just a very small part. It's around 5% of MSCI ACQUI, the All Country World Index. So I think when you're creating these indices, you have to think about things like liquidity. If there was a potential problem with liquidity, then index maintainers wouldn't be able to sell their China holdings. So for them, it's a bit of a headache if you've got this illiquid tail in the index. So it is problematic for the index providers. I can see why they don't want to up the weighting too much in case there is a problem. Yeah, they have to be sensible, but we don't. So what are we thinking about when we're allocating to China? Well, I mean, personally, I would never put it into my core. It's not my core holding. It would only ever be in my fund portfolio. And, you know, that's like 10% of my total investments. You mean a bespoke China allocation, but China is in your core, presumably, as part of the global index. Yeah. So I buy a global index, which includes emerging markets. And so China will be part of that. It'll be about 4% of the index. But would I put it into my core? I don't think so. Not as an explicit weighting. And the reason why is I just think it is too risky, certainly from my point of view, because, you know, I've got a lot of grey hair and I can't afford to make a mistake. And if there was a political problem, then I couldn't recover from it, potentially, if I had a very large allocation. Yeah, your hair can't get any greyer, Roman. You can't take that risk on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're talking about there's quite a bit of black there, But have you spoken to people who are sort of overweighting China? Uh, Not just a little bit, but hugely. And in fact, a lot of the reading I did on China was based on one specific client. Obviously, all of these things are confidential, but this person had got a huge weighting in single stocks in China. And the argument was much of the bull case I made earlier about valuations, but also potential growth. And I think it was just in four or five stocks. And that was their core portfolio. I mean, that is bold, right? And yeah. a little bit crazy. You know, they, they were saying, look, the narrative that you hear in the West is misleading. And if you try to read the local news, of course, it's biased in the opposite way. But then at least you get a kind of balanced view of what's going on. I certainly did look at some of the sources they listed. And, you know, it does tell a very different story. Yeah, if you're based in the West, though, surely it's really hard to select specific Chinese companies to invest in. I mean, we talk about how hard it is to beat the market and how many active managers fail in picking Western companies where you can really dig into their books and speak to management and know that the government probably isn't just going to arbitrarily change all the regulations overnight. But, you know, doing that in China is presumably 10 times harder. I agree. I mean, I would never take that kind of risk, particularly due to the lack of transparency. At least with an index, you will get some diversification. So, you know, if there is kind of a slight cooking of the books, you'd at least be protected from that if it's a small proportion of the companies. But if it's a wholesale massive lie, then <laughs> then the index won't protect you. If the index is full of Enrons, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's what I'd worry about, that it was an index of Enrons. And, you know, I wouldn't take that risk. But I've come across people whose allocation is basically 50% US, 50% China, ignore the rest of the world. They think Europe's not going to have a great time of it. They don't believe in the rest of EM. They just want that two poles of the world, in their view, US and China. I mean, I guess that's consistent with, is it going to be a binary outcome? One of them's going to be the victor technologically, and this way you're going to back one of them at least. And I think it's true to say that over the next 10, 20, 30, 100 years, that's what's going to characterise technology. It's going to be a fight between those two as the kind of two poles of technological innovation. And it'll probably come down to politics when a single country decides which one to back. But certainly, if you look at that world map of trade, it looks like the shift is very much towards China right now. And I think the other point that we haven't really touched on is that you are exposed to China, even if you just owned US companies, say, like Apple, for instance, sells a huge amount of products into China. That's a really good point. And I think even if you buy a DM index, which doesn't have any EM in it at all, you're going to get Chinese exposure in that. And this idea of decoupling between China and the West is just nonsense. You know, there's just no way you could have an accident in China and not have it affect the West. That world's gone. Investing in China and emerging markets generally and the risks that go with that are often discussed on our Slack forum in Pensioncraft. So if you want to join that conversation, you can simply sign up on pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what happens if Chinese stocks are forced to delist from the New York Stock Exchange? So there's a lot of talk about this over the last few years, and it's one of the primary risks, I think, in investing in Chinese equity. It might just stop being on the stock exchange. So what happens? It really depends how you've got exposure. So if you're buying single stocks, you'll do it by an American depository receipt. Now, these were created not just for China, but long ago on the US equity markets, if you wanted to buy a single stock which was listed on a foreign exchange, a non-US exchange. But the idea is that one of these ADRs tracks one for one the equity price on the foreign exchange with the proviso that it's adjusted for currency. So it doesn't have a currency hedge built into it, so you've still got that risk in addition to the stock's risk. So, for example, if you wanted exposure to Didi, the Chinese company, you could buy ADRs on the New York Stock Exchange, which would give you exposure. But Didi is probably one of the ones which is going to delist. So you're not going to have that forever. I mean, just stepping back a bit, why is there this threat of delisting? So in 2020, US Congress passed this Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act. So it's the HFCAA. And the fundamental problem is to do with government ownership. I remember at the time, President Trump not unreasonably said that you don't want to fund a company which is effectively helping a foreign hostile power and its military. So what they needed to do is identify those companies. So firstly, you have to have transparency. You have to see who actually owns the company. And that means properly audited accounts. And there's been ongoing talks, hasn't there, between the US and Chinese authorities. And they've been trying to resolve this issue for a long time. And it's really going to come to a head this year because that act sort of puts a hard cutoff date in it. And the SEC has named 12 ADRs, which are actually in the sights of that act and may be forced to be delisted. So the Chinese government body, which is actually cooperating with the SEC, is called the China Securities Regulatory Commission, the CSRC. So they have been trying to arrive at a solution, as you say. Yeah, and I read that 
the key outstanding bit is around the audit papers that the Chinese companies are providing and the redactions in them. So the US is saying, yeah, you're saying these are audited now and we can look at them, but you're sort of just taking out all the information we want to see. <laughs> Stop doing that. And the Chinese government, for its part, is saying that it's not going to allow foreign entities, such as the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the PCAOB in America, to look at the books of Chinese companies because they see it as a potential threat. Yeah, and it's all going to come to a head. I think in November this year is when the director of the SEC said it needs to be resolved by. So time is running out. But the question, I guess, for investors is what happens if it isn't resolved and companies are forced to delist? What happens to my shares that I own? If it is single stocks, then really there are three outcomes. One of them is a buyback scenario where the Chinese company just buys its shares back from you. I doubt the companies would want to do that because it's going to take a big chunk out of their capital and they may not have enough money to do it. Or you can go for something like a share transfer scenario where you get a one-for-one swap or depending on how many shares are in the ADR, a one-for-n swap with shares on, say, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange if there are listed shares for the company on that exchange. Yeah, so neither of those outcomes sounds too bad. In the first one, they're just buying the stock back off me. Now, that could be problematic if the stock price is falling because of the delisting and they're buying it at a really knockdown price, right? <laughs> yeah, because suddenly you've gone from a company which has got a lot of capital to a company which has had to use a lot of its cash, you know, to buy back its own shares. So that might not be a good thing if it's at a depressed price. And the share transfer scenario you mentioned, yeah, maybe that's okay. Now I own it in Hong Kong. But if it's already listed in Hong Kong and I bought it in America, maybe there's a reason I did that. Maybe I don't want to own it in Hong Kong for some reason. So there are a couple of problems with that, because if you own it in Hong Kong, for example, the market there tends to be much less liquid. Clearly, liquidity is important because it increases your trading costs if it is illiquid. And the US authorities might see that change of shares as a taxable event. So you might get a bill, <laughs> a capital gains tax bill. Which is a problem. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned there is three scenarios. We've done two. We've done the buyback and the share transfer. What's the third case? So that's you just muddle through and hope for the best. You know, you're just left in limbo, which is clearly not very good. Yeah. So as I understand it, you know, if the company doesn't buy back the shares and doesn't have anywhere else to list, then yeah, you're in limbo. And you kind of still technically own the shares of the company, but there's no stock exchange trading them. So you have to work in over-the-counter markets, as it's called, and literally you know, ring someone up and say, do you want to buy my shares? <laughs> That's the disaster scenario, I would say. But the thing is, if you own a fund like KWeb, they're going to have to do this for you. They've actually been very transparent about that process, and they say they're going to switch to Hong Kong listed stocks if they're available, which I think for their stocks, they all are. And I know there have been Chinese companies that have started delisting already and just getting on with it. So five Chinese state-owned enterprises have just announced that they're going to voluntarily delist from US exchanges. You can't see this, but Roman is doing uh, air quotes on the word voluntarily. <laughs> <laughs> so, for example, China Life Insurance Company, PetroChina, China Petroleum and Chemical Corporation and so on. Yeah, so it is happening. The question of are they going to have to delist? Well, some probably are. We'll just see which ones. But will China step back from listing its stocks on foreign exchanges altogether? No, because it's a huge source of capital for them. And often it's a very deep pool of capital. So if they want to grow, it's certainly in their interest to be able to do that. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. 
Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.